0: welcome again to the strange brew podcast that was john miles there and you make it so hard from 1971 and that's because i've got the huge pleasure to speak with bob marshall here today john's a longtime collaborator on his records co-songwriter and bassist and this is a fantastic opportunity to remember and celebrate john as well as hear bob's story as part of that a huge welcome bob
1: Thanks, I appreciate the opportunity. It's nice to be able to talk about John, you know. John was a genius. Yeah. And in the early days, I I don't think John realized how good he was. And it wasn't until, um, you know, he started playing with people like Tina Turner. Mm. Then he does the proms and he was dueting with people like Michael McDonald and, and people like that. And I think then he started to realize how good he was. I mean, we toured with people. We toured with the Stones, with Elton John, with everybody. And at one time or another, I always saw them on the side of the stage watching him. Everybody knew. I think everybody knew how he how good he was, except him.
0: How did your paths cross? Because it is very, very early in uh, John's musical journey, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I played in when I was seventeen or eighteen. The first sort of public group I was in. Won the uh, top-ranked national group competition, must have been in uh, about '64, 1964. And I played in groups after that. I lived in Italy for two and a half years. Didn't have a lot of work. stuff. We used to run down the street, pinching the pinching the food off the restaurant tables. <laughs> so I stayed there for two and a half years, and then I came back and. Uh, I wasn't interested in playing anymore, but I was offered the job in the resident band at the Sunderland Top Rank Ballroom. So I took that for a year, but then I fancied being on the road again. So somebody said, oh, I'm in Sweden now. Do you fancy coming to Sweden? So I thought, yeah, great. Packed the top rank in, jumped on the ferry, went to Sweden. And within a couple of hours, I realized Sweden was the same as Italy. No no work. So anyway, I stayed there for a year and a half, and I was 25. And I thought, if I'm going to make it, I'm, I'm not going to make it in Sweden or Italy or wherever. So I came back to Sunderland, and I asked around who the best groups were up there. And up to that point, I played lead guitar. And I asked around who the best groups were up there, and a couple of names kept cropping up. And one was John Miles. And I remembered meeting John a few years before. And I noticed he was. Uh, it was a band. They had a, a group called the John John Miles Set. That was only a three-piece: him, a bass player, and drummer. And I noticed they were resident at a club in Sunderland every Monday and Thursday. So on the Monday, I went down and I watched them. And uh, he re- he recognised me, remembered me. He came over, and uh, I got talking. And he said, "He said, What are you doing?'" I said, "Well, nothing at the moment, to be honest." He said, "Well, have you ever thought about somebody dropped me a hint that he wasn't too happy with his bass player?" And he said, "Have you ever thought about playing bass?" Playing and I thought, "No, not really." But to be honest, I would have played a penny whistle to join him because he was all he was even before we moved to London. He was always brilliant, brilliant. So he said, "Have you ever thought about playing bass?" And I said, "No, not nah, really." But he said, "Well, I'm not very happy with my bass player." So if um, if you like, he said, do you fancy joining me in playing bass? So I went out and I borrowed the money, bought a bass and uh, joined them. And that was it. And we stayed there for a few years. We, we won that opportunity Knox. Remember with Huey Green?
0: Oh, yes.
1: And uh, yeah, we won that. It didn't do it. But you know who beat us the week we lost? Yeah. It was the real thing. I've had them on recently. The real thing. Yeah. Yeah, Dave Peterson over Julie Knox. So then after a while, we um, John was with a small record label called Orange, and uh, the owner of Orange offered us to go to London, just me and John, and write songs for a year. Our manager got us a gig at the Hammersmith Audion, supporting a band from America called the Ohio Players. and We went on there, and he got all the record companies along to have a look. Uh, and we had quite a few choices, but uh, in the end, he chose Decker, and uh, we signed with Decker, and um, our first, which probably in hindsight was a mistake, considering AMI and Chrysalis and everybody wanted John, but he decided Decker, so we went with Decker, and the first uh, single high fly was uh,
0: was a hit. Had you just relatively recently started writing with John? Because Highfly was
1: one that you'd worked on we,
0: together,
1: I think. Yeah, we, uh, we messed about with it a bit. When I first joined John, we were, you know, in the early 70s, there wasn't the pub scene that there is now. And up north, everybody used to go to workmen's clubs. That was your early pub scene. And we were working three, four, five nights at least every week. And so after a while, after the Opportunity Knox things, we just messed about a bit and, and tried it right and see if we could. And we came up with a couple of things, uh, demoed them in the Orange Studios, and that was when Cliff Cooper said to us, Move to London, I'll pay you to write songs and then try and get you a big record deal. So we just messed about really and I I don't think we seriously sat down and tried to do it probably until we moved to London. That We moved to London in uh, in 1974. It was from then on that we seriously wrote. Then High Fly came out, I think, was in October 75. And that, that was a hit. John had already written music by then he wrote it when we we were doing the clubs, we used to go away for weeks doing like a week's camera or whatever in the club and we were in an old boarding house in Leeds and John wrote music on a rickety piano in, in an old boarding house in Leeds but ages ago because music was our biggest hit and that's the only one I didn't write but I told him last. I told him last year that I've forgiven him for for writing music, for writing music without me. But it was always uh it was always a big joke between us, you know. People would, even now people say, oh, I heard your record on the on the radio the other day and I would say, Yeah, but it was bloody music, was it? They say, Yeah, it was. So yeah, that's where you know, we uh, we moved to London we started, right? And we did a rebel album. Yeah. But music wasn't it wasn't a planned thing to release music as a single because yeah. single singles only had to be what three minutes long, three and a half minutes or something. So music was five six minutes. But then Queen put Bohemian Rhapsody out and that was a hit. So then Decca turned around and said, "Well, what do you think about they put music out?" And everybody was very dubious about it, although. Everybody thought it was a great song, which, its I mean, it's a classic. Everybody was a bit, well, I'm not sure, you know, maybe it won't get played. But because of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, it did get played. And never and do you know what kept it off number one? No. Save All Your Kisses For Me. Oh. Yeah. Oh. That kept it off oh. number one. And we did, we did Top of the Pops a couple of times with Brotherhood of Man. And uh, of course they were number one, and we were number two or three or something. And they always used to come up to us and apologise for being number one when we were number two. Just went on, we went to America. But John was a John was a real sort of family man. He didn't like being away too much, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. And if you want to make it in America, you've got to spend a lot of time there touring. Doing all the gigs and, and we used to go for six weeks at a time, but that re- realistically isn't enough. No. And um, so we so, so we kind of did all right, and we always went down well, and we played we played with everybody over there. It was amazing. We did quite well, but we never kind of totally cracked it three times. The
0: Rebel Arm has got quite a distinctive. Sound of Alan Parsons, who was doing, you know, a lot of stuff in that time, all sounding w- wonderful. Everyone from uh, Steve Harley of later, Alan Parsons, and and so on. Um, what was it like to work with Alan? In in actually at Abbey Road, I
1: think, wasn't it? We did lots in Abbey Road. We did lots of stuff there. Alan was great. Sometimes I thought that Alan stuff wasn't ballsy enough. Uh, I even thought it at the time, I mean, it was fantastic. You know, I can I can still remember going into Abbey Road the day that we, um, we'd we obviously done all the backing tracks. And then we went in to, to put the strings on and bass and everything. And hear that orchestra sitting there listening to that orchestra playing music and other orchestrations that Andrew Powell had done was brilliant. Alan was a great producer. But you see the problem the problem with John always for me was that he was so brilliant, we never fitted into a pattern. No. We never built up that if we'd stuck to like doing rock stuff or whatever, you get a following don't you? Yeah. But every single that we did or most of them were different. Our most successful single in America was Slow Down, which was a discoy thing. Yeah. And then, then, John, the next thing we did after the Stranger in the City was slowed down was Zaragon. Yeah. There was a, it was a million miles away from Slow down. So, for me, we didn't build up a following. like Heavy metal bands have a following, and they will buy anything that that band does. Yeah. Records, t-shirts, anything. But because we didn't stick to a pattern... I don't think... We build up a following, but not your kind of dedicated following that a heavy metal band would would have. When we'd finished one album and we might have had tracks left over, Mm -hmm. John would never go back. He would never go back to writing or finish songs that we hadn't completed the last time. He was always on to the next thing. His musical brain was so incredible that we never... You know, we never knew what he was going to come up with. I would I, Sometimes uh, I would give him the lyrics first, and sometimes he would give the music first. And it was easier for me when he gave me the music first, because if you hear a tune or whatever, normally something comes into your mind. But I used to give him, um, for instance, the, the album we did with Gus Dudgeon, mm. Play On, I gave him the lyrics first. Oh For that album Gus Dudgeon was another amazing producer He he was uh, We've worked with some great people Music
2: was my first love And it will be my last Music of the future of the pain
0: mentioned Slow Down as, as we go forward. You went over to America to work with uh, Rupert Holmes, didn't you? Yeah. That must have been quite a contrast. Well, it was.
1: Uh, and I can tell you the story behind that, we always used to love Darryl Hall and John Oates. Yeah. And we tried to get Darryl Hall to produce an album for us. But when we got in touch, he was too busy, he couldn't do it. So we thought, okay. So we got in touch with Rupert Holmes, agreed that we're going ahead with it. And the week after that Darrell Hall got in touch and said he could do it. But it was Oh wow. it was too late then. But Rupert Holmes was brilliant as well. He was great to work with. He was so much fun. Yeah, we did we did two albums with him, didn't we? Right. Yeah, we did Stranger and we did we said it, yeah, it's Aragon we did with him, didn't we? Yeah, I'm sure it was.
0: From that period where you were working with uh, Rupert Holmes, um, one of the singles in that period was Remember Yesterday. And what was the um, the approach in terms of you um, gathering lyrics? Was was Remember Yesterday a, a personal song or, or was it that you were just... No,
1: no, especially. I'll tell you the story about that. We'd I find there had been a hit and uh, I was still, me and John and his wife, Aline, were still living together. We had a house in Muswell Hill. Because it had a hit, I was looking for a flat. So, But at the time, we were still living in Muswell Hill. We used to wake up in the morning and so sort on. Of, but we never rode together. We were always, you know, sort of separately. And it was a nice sunny day. And uh, we got up, had some breakfast, and John went and sat in the garden. And I said, well, and just up the road from where we lived was Alexandria Park, where Alexandria Palace is. And I said, right, John, I said, I'm going, I'm, I'll go away and do some writing. And I sat in this this bench, this park park bench, and I I wrote, remember, yesterday, it wasn't particularly about anything or anybody, it was, it was just an idea I had and it just came. But when I'd finished or done as much as I was going to that day, I went back and John was still sitting in the garden. I said, John, are you singing there, bloody garden. I said, you haven't done anything. And he left. He says, I have. I've written a song. I said, no, you haven't. You've never left the garden. I said, play me it. So we went into the house, and he, I honestly can't remember which song it was, but he'd written a song in his head. It's incredible, you know. Incredible. I mean, some of my songs were about ex-girlfriends and things like that. But a lot of them are just a series of words. And I remember when we when we did some, some gigs with Paul O'Hara, uh, I met, I can't remember his name, the name of the guy that did all their lyrics. And um, I said to him, you know, in the 60s, everybody was saying, why the shade of pale is about this and about that and about the other. And he just laughed. He said, it's about nothing. And he said, it's just a series of lines. But nearly all my songs were about something. The only song I wrote that wasn't about anything. That was just a series of lines. And it was, I think, probably one of John's favorites was Time. That didn't have a story or anything. Mm. But sometimes you, you have a basis of a story, but you just, you just write lines because they rhyme. Do you know what I mean? I mean, to be honest with you, sometimes I look at the old thing I've written, and I can't believe I've written it. More so my mom and dad, because my dad was a headmaster. The, the one he used to ask me about most was, remember yesterday? Hmm. And 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 he, he, there's a line that says, clouds remind me I'm alone. He said, where did that come from? And I said, well, I was sitting in the park and I looked up and I saw the clouds just drifting by. Do you know what I mean? You, you just you, Your mind works in, in crazy ways, really.
0: about Nice Man Jack? I mean, that's a a whole different ballpark, park, isn't it? It was
1: about Jack the Ripper. Yeah. It was about the original. And do you know that uh, the police wanted to question us about the Ripper murders? What? Because a, a couple of the dates we were sort of in that area, in Bradford or somewhere like that, you know. Does that to do with your accent? No. Well, maybe it
0: was. Maybe it was. Because the, they had that recording didn't they, of I'm Jack i
1: the guy from Sunderland where where I live. Yeah, nice man Jack. It was just an idea I had about how nobody knew who he was. So I had this idea that perhaps he was just an ordinary bloke, you know, that would say hello to the kids and everybody would say, oh, "What a nice fella he is." But actually, he was the Ripper. That was the basis of that. So I'm featuring the, the
0: single edit, but actually on, on the album. You could have different musical phases in that, and that's really built up. How how did that develop with John? It's just the way he used to
1: write it. I can't say enough of what a genius the guy was. For me, yeah. standing beside him on stage for 18 years was like having a front row seat every night. Another song like that was uh, Fellow in the Cellar. or yes. Pull pull the Jab thing down. They just all... Uh, it kind of evolved. It was just the way he wrote them. Pull a damn thing down, years ago, I mean I don't know how old you are, but years ago on a lunchtime, there used to be a program called Pebble Mill at One. Yes. Yeah, I know that, yeah. And it was it was kind of a magazine program. Yeah. I think it was one it was before we moved to Washing uh, to London, maybe it wasn't, but I was sitting watching that with my mum and dad. And there was a there was a, a a piece on about how they were pulling these flats or whatever it was down to make a new road. That's where I got the idea. Things crop up in your life, you know, but mm. you'll see a situation or an idea will come in your head from nowhere. And I when we were writing, I would sometimes wake I used to I used to keep a a pad and a pen beside my bed. And I would wake up in the middle of the night and just think of things. And I would scribble them down on this pad. And when I woke up in the morning, I'd look at this pad. There was like scribblings, scribblings that I couldn't even work out what they were. But you just get ideas at different times. Uh, and I always used to jot them down. I used to have, I used to have pages of just words and phrases. And if I couldn't find something to fit in, uh, I would just get these sheets of paper out and, and go through them, and I would often find what I'd been looking for. I just used to kind of jot everything down, but it was always very relaxed. Mm. Uh, you, you know, it was, we were never pressurized or anything. We'd finish an album and tour and all that, then we'd know, you know, we've got to start writing again. When an album came out, we wouldn't start writing for the next one, Uh, we would sort of tour and do all that. Mm. And then we'd sit and write. Well, I was going to say virtually never. We never sat and wrote together. When we were in New York, we um, actually was, uh, when we were recording with, uh, we knew we were going to be recording with Rupert Holmes. It's a long time ago. Mm. They said you're going to have to come up with some new stuff. And uh, they got a rehearsal room for us, for me and John. And this rehearsal room was just off Broadway, and we were walking down. To, we were walking down to this rehearsal room, and I, I looked around, and that's where Manhattan skyline came from. I had I, I had to think of a title, so I I just looked and I saw Manhattan skyline. You know, things come to you when you're not particularly looking forward to them or, or you're looking for anything in particular. They just come to you out of the blue. I was, when I was at school, I was never in, I always had a, a bit of a butterfly brain. I've always been a bit emotional, and I think that's probably why I've been able to write some of the lyrics I have. But we were, we were a good team. We never, I mean, 18 years old, John, we never had an argument. Mm. Never. Ne- the whole band was the happiest years of our life. Mm. We never argued. There was never, there was never any, egos, I think because basically we knew that John was the star, but there was never you know, it was never like John and the band. We used to do everything together, muck in with everything. There was no jealousies or or anything like that.
0: You and the group went back with uh, Alan Parsons for, for more miles per hour, but that gave a chance, for example, with the single Can't Keep a Good Man Down to show a heavier heavier side there.
1: So you, you couldn't pigeonhole you guys? Well, that's exactly what I said, isn't it?
0: Mm.
1: You see, in a, in a lot of ways, mm. maybe we should have gone down the guitar metal route because then we would have built up a heavy metal following who who were the most loyal of all the wholly different uh, types, really, aren't they? Yeah. That was Johnny. He never knew what he was going to come up with. After Slow Down, uh, the next album was Zaragon, yeah. which was totally different. And John decided that he didn't want to use any orchestras. Yeah. It was totally his idea. So we used, you know, synthesizers were just coming in. I mean, basically, that's why, although he was a great keyboard player, that's why we changed Gary Mobley and got Brian Chatton in. Yeah. Not because Brian was a better keyboard player, but because synthesizers were just coming in. Gary didn't. He didn't have knowledge of synthesizers and things. And because we a lot of our songs, especially like music or fellow in the cellar or whatever, we kind of had big orchestral parts. We had to try and do that live. Mm. And, and Brian was quite knowledgeable on the... I mean, when we when music was first a hit, it was a nightmare. Like now, you can press a button and you can get a full orchestra sound. But you couldn't in those days. No. And synthesizers were just coming in. And we tried everything. And one of the basic ones, one of the first ones, was a thing called a Selena. But if you put that through echoes and all that, you got a decent orchestra sound. But that's basically why we changed Gary for Brian, although Gary was a great keyboard player. He was more of a rock and roll player, you know, and and, and Brian was much more into synthesizers and all that. I think
0: that that change in sound by the, the late 70s, including that period of more miles per hour, for me, listening back, the material is just consistently strong, but... I've read about the music papers being unfair, and do you think that was just because they they wanted to pigeonhole John and and the group in a particular
1: genre, and, and you just wouldn't do that? It's not that we wouldn't do it. It was just the way that John was and the way John wrote. He would just write what he wrote at the time. So I think everybody just went along with it. Nobody ever said, oh, well, you should be doing this, I. To be honest with you, we didn't have a lot of guidance with anything. Management-wise, I mean, I think our management was totally weak. I think it was terrible. I think um, Elton John's manager, John Reed, tried to buy John's contract and uh, Cliff Cooper wouldn't sell it. But if he had sold it, John Reed would have had, uh, had Queen, Elton John, and he would have had us as well, but Cliff wouldn't sell it. There was no guidance with what we should wear and things like that. It was as if all of a sudden people had got this group that were doing it well and nobody knew what to do with them. So was it John who
0: was um, invented his look then? Or was um,
1: it- well, it wasn't. The first uh, The first look was the rebel look, the uh, uh, James Dean thing. Yeah. And that was because when High Flight came out and it looked as if it was doing all right, we did a show for Mike Mansfield called Supersonic. And the week after that, we got our first Top of the Pops. And the guy from our music publisher was Mickey Most's brother, Dave Most, who was, who was the top plugger at the time. I mean, look at all your rackets. Dave Most was the best plugger. And he turned around to us and he said, you've got Top of the Pops. At the moment, you look like every other group. You've got to do something different to make you stand out. And there were magazines that were covering all your groups and your hits at the time. But they weren't particularly interested in John because we were just another group. And at that time, there was a big James Dean thing happening. And Dave Most said, why don't we get all your hair cut and you wear tight jeans and all that. And everybody said, all right, except me. I said i'm not cutting i said i'm not I'm not cutting my bloody hair, you know, but uh I did obviously, and so we went on top of the pops with this James Dean sort of look, and you know what within days, all these magazines that hadn't been interested before because we'd come out with a new look that was totally different at the time because everybody had their long hair, all these magazines wanted to do interviews, Imagine the change. And then yeah, that went on to be a hit. And then we gradually had our hair growing, uh, and, and that was it. But we, we had no real guidance as such. John was the last word you'd use to describe John as pushy. He just, he just. In the band, I was the boss more than him. When we used to, when we used to do a tour, I used to write the program out, mm. and I just. Sh- i just showed it to John and said, hey, okay, he was so easygoing and laid back. So, you know, he just went along. And, you know, if, if we were in the dressing room and the, the tour manager or somebody would come and say, John, what do you want to do about this? John would just say, "Oh, ask Bob.
0: come to a head in the early 80s because i've heard that there was label contractual issues and that basically stopped you releasing anything for a few years didn't it no it was that was decker
1: right decker were trying to they were trying to get us to do stuff that john just it was very um john's all these people and he's very he just goes along with everything you know but if john says no it's no and they were trying to get us to do I think one of the songs they wanted us to re really record was Johnny Be Good, you know, the old rock. Yeah. Yeah. And, and John just said, No way. It just, it just kind of fell apart. And our, our Cliff Cooper was, well, to put it crudely, he was weak as piss, you know. Yeah. He were, I, I could do a show with you and Cliff Cooper. But there was nobody, you see, Cliff was, he owned Orange. Cliff was a wealthy, wealthy man. Oh, right. He owned Orange. He had all sorts of things going on. And for me, John was just a really great hobby for Cliff. He wasn't depending on us for his living or anything like that and he would if he wanted John to do something, he'd say, "Bob ask him to do this." He used to get me to ask him John to do things he wasn't there was nobody driving us, so that's that's to a point why we seem to drift so much. Do you
0: understand yeah, it was the right to sing then was that literally the right to sing
1: i um well, that was from the play on album. Yeah, I went back to Sunderland for a, a month or something, and I uh, I just sat in. I had an old bureau in my my mom and dad's bedroom, and I just sat and wrote everything there. To be honest, it was probably in the back of my mind, but it just once you start a song, words just it just progresses and words come into your, into your head. It wasn't deliberately meant to be a, like a, an anthem or anything, you know. Mm. But you see what happened with that was that was our first album with with EMI and there was there was a guy who the A and R department is a department that says what comes out and they push it, you know. Yeah. And the guy that was the head of A and R that signed us just before that album came out, he left EMI and he went to manage Aha. Oh, so there was a new head of A&R You've lost your ally Yeah But the biggest ally The guy behind everything And the new fella I can't remember who it was Obviously wanted to push his signings And you know So we we kind of got lost a little bit But that's what happened with that album And you were working with Gus Dudgeon In yeah. that period, weren't you? Gus wasn't mad about the right to sing He did it But he I I don't think he wanted to do like another sort of music. Oh, okay. If you if you hear the rest of the album, it's different from the right to sing, isn't it? Mm. And so he, Gus, wasn't totally enthusiastic about the right to sing. Although um, most people were, and then the head of A and R left, and it came out, but it wasn't uh, EMI. Didn't really push it, so it just faded into oblivion. But I think it was quite a good
0: song, to be honest. I think the thing is about that song, is is listening back, is that whatever was in the charts at the time, whatever sound, A&R or whatever, when you hear it now, without the listening to the contemporary stuff, it holds up.
1: Yeah. To be honest, I, um, I don't listen to all this stuff. And uh, last year was during lockdown, I went out and I bought myself a record player, you know, with like a built in deck and little amplifier and everything. I got all the albums out and I listened to one album every day. And then after I'd done it, I used to send it, you know, I used to write a a little critique of it and send, send it to John by email. And and tell him, and because uh, it was I mean, you know, I was on my own for two years, I was tearing my hair out. Mm. And you know, I used to write and, and say what like was my favourite track or what I didn't like about this or, or that. And so it was quite interesting, you know, we chatted about it and uh yeah, but the right to sing I yeah, I think you're probably right. But you know, if you do something that you think's really good and you're really happy with it, yeah and the record company don't agree, there's nothing you can do. And especially, especially with our main guy, I can't remember his name, but he left to manager ha
2: hmm.
1: And apparently with him not being there, there wasn't the push behind it. So, you know, things just, hmm. I guess, started to go downhill from then, which is unbelievable because it was a very, very expensive album. Gus Durgin was he was very expensive. Right but if you listen to what the production on it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, he's dead now, you know, because oh. died in a car crash with his wife years ago, but he was always immaculately dressed, you know. Yeah. He used to come in every day, and he was immaculately dressed, but funny to work with, great stories. I like own John's stories and stuff. Apparently, unfortunately, the album just didn't do it.
2: sing the right to play the right to do the things I feel in my own way and if you took it all and asked me to pretend you'd be breaking a heart that won't mend the right to win the right to lose The right to fall in love with anyone I choose and When it's my mistake and everything goes wrong I would write what I feel in a song
0: Tell me about blinded because you, you rightly say it's it's one of the best or the best that that you wrote together oh, it's
1: me it's me favorite yeah you know when you're in the studio we did in we did it took us all. what happened was the last couple of albums didn't really do anything and john John was just fed up he, John never liked being the front man when we when we finished a show. John would go back to the hotel with Barry the Drummer and um, just get pissed in the bar. But I used to—I was the one that was out all the time, you know what I mean, after a concert. I was the one that, if we were supporting the Stones or whoever, I would stay behind and watch their show. But John, uh, in a way, he, was, but he wasn't really rock and roll, you know. He was just a nice lad, great family and all that. You write an album, you record it, you spend ages doing it, and when, it, when it's finished, hopefully you're happy with it, which we were. And then you wait for it coming out. And then it comes out, and the record company put next to no promotion behind it whatsoever. And it's so destroying, you know. And I think John, by this time, by the time Play On came out and things, I think it, um, he was pretty cheesed off, you know. And when we used to get to a place... Johnny used to have to go out and do all the interviews and all that and we would relax around the pool or do whatever I used to go him sometimes just to keep him company but he didn't love all that side of it and so he said um, one day he said you know he said, I've just about had enough of this like putting our heart and soul into everything and then it comes out and nothing happens and he said I wouldn't mind playing with somebody else for a while yeah, just so I didn't have all the responsibility you know I can imagine when he said that. I thought, oh, no. Mm. So, um, and Cliff Cooper came along one one day and he said, I've got an offer of a, of a new deal with, it was through Warner Brothers And it was a, a guy called Phil Carson that discovered ACDC and all that lot. And Phil had started his own, own label off. So Cliff said he wants to sign John. So, um, what do you think? And so we told him, John says, Yeah, it sounds great. You know, as if, I mean, the guy's really behind us. So let's do it. And we went over to LA. We'd written the songs and we did two songs with Trevor Rabin, which yeah. is uh, I Need Your Love and Blinded. And those two songs alone cost £120,000 to do. Wow. Which in those days, we went to uh, Ocean View Studios in. Um, in, in Hollywood, and Trevor was just amazing. And you know, and you take machines in those days, are 32 tracks. Sometimes people would wire two machines together, so you get 64 tracks. Trevor wired three together. Oh, wow. If you listen to, to Blinded towards the end, everything's in there the bloody kitchen sinks in there, everything absolutely incredible. I just love the song, and it came out. Phil Carson's company didn't have the money to promote it. It literally came out. Uh, we did a video, and it's weird because we got to the shoot for the video, and it was set in a scrapyard. Can you remember the video?
0: No, it was in a scrapyard.
1: Uh, it was set in, like, a scrapyard. You look at the video on um, on YouTube, it's saying like, a scrapyard. And when we walked in, I said, "John, I hope this isn't a bloody omen." <laughs> and we just laughed. I we just laughed, but it came out, and, and nothing happened. So obviously, John was cheesed off again, you know. That album and that
0: seemed to be the a turning point there, where relatively soon that, after John started going with Tina Turner, and
1: yeah, that was that was really the the last nail in the coffin. We had a different drummer then, Barry Black. Uh, was doing other things so we got a new drummer uh, called Barrymore Barlow who used to be with Jethro Tull a brilliant drummer but uh, not the nicest guy in the world Brian Chanton wasn't with us anymore Julian Colbert was there wasn't the great atmosphere in the band that there had been uh, when it was Brian, Barry and me and John the four of us were inseparable we laughed and joked and loved each other all the time but by the time the uh, transition album came out. We were a band, but there wasn't there wasn't the closeness there at all. It just wasn't the same. So it came out and nothing happened. And uh, John says, "I oh, probably said I've had enough," you know. Yeah. And I was he was right. I was gutted, you know. And um, a friend of ours, a keyboard player, used to be with Dive Straits. He'd been working with Tina a little bit. He uh, phoned John one day and said. Tina needs another keyboard player. Are you interested? So John for me. I said, John, just take it. I said, do it, you know. And he was happy because he didn't have to do all the interviews, all that. All he had to do was what he always wanted to do, get to the gig, get his guitar around his shoulder, do the gig, and that was it. And so he joined Tina playing keyboards. And uh, they did Wembley, and I was still living in London at the time. They did Wembley and I, I went to the show and after the show, I went out clubbing with the band, you know, mm. and uh, stand around talking to him and I said something about John's guitar playing. And one of them said, can he play guitar? <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah. I said, bloody hell, he can He hadn't even told them he could play guitar. Amazing. He'd just done his gig playing keyboards and that was it. And then a few months after that, Tina Turner had a birthday party in London and she hired a club. And there was like musical instruments on the stage and people were just getting up playing, you know. And Tina was standing up on the balcony with her manager looking down. And uh, Eileen told me this. John just walked on the stage, picked the guitar up and started to play and sing. And Eileen said, Tina just looked at her, her manager to say, bloody hell, And after that, John always played guitar with her. But that's what he's like. He didn't even tell the band he could play guitar. They didn't even know. I mean, how how modest is that? His talent is such a loss. I mean, he was like a brother to me, so you can imagine I still find it very hard, to be honest, because so many people are putting stuff on Facebook, and nearly every day things are cropping up. It makes it hard to realize that he's gone. Thank you. What did you do afterwards? Unfortunately, the bane of my life is my laziness. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the laziest person. Although, maybe our best friend at the time was uh, Eddie Kidd. You know, the motorbike stuntman? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he was our best friend. I, I, I lived in London. I mean, I was out all the time, you know, and I used to knock around with Eddie. And he'd just done the I had. and he was getting lots of work like opening clubs and opening shops and making personal appearances. And I wasn't doing anything. And he said, Bob, I really need somebody to organize my life. So I thought, well, that sounds good. Just driving around the, the country, traveling around with him, staying in nice hotels, eating in nice restaurants. That sounds good to me. So I stopped playing. That's the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life because I would have got, I wasn't a world beater, but I was, I was a decent bass player. Mm. I mean, Brian Chatton uh, went on to join um, Meat Loaf. Gary Mobley had went to, he'd been playing with the BGS for a while. So I was in that kind of company that I would have got a decent job. But it was, you know, it was just uh, so I So I, I was ready with Eddie for three or four years and Eddie's work started to dry up. So I decided for some reason to move back up north. So, um, I moved back up to Sunderland and the pal of mine had owned the uh, the club where John had done the residency when I first met him. I saw him and he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. Uh, I, I was 45 at the time. I said, I might open my own bar or something like that. He said, well, why don't you come and work for me for a while, for a month, just see if you like, he said, you might hate the business. Mm. So I went to worked for him and... After three weeks, he started, sacked one of his managers and um, I went to work for them. He owned a few clubs and things and I managed places, but I didn't like it. I hated it because people would say, if they saw me in the street, they would say, oh, there's, there's Bobby manager, so-and-so, you know. And I wanted to be there as Bob John Miles' partner. So I, I drifted into that and after a few years, I just, uh, I just stopped it and packed in. By then, I'd lost the music thing. I miss it when I see live bands and stuff. And now I've had my stroke; my, my fingers are pretty numb. I can't play anyway. But uh, the best years of my life, without doubt, for the eighteen years I had with John Miles—absolutely fantastic. And uh, his because his stuff was so different. Yeah. You don't. I never got bored. But, you know, it was great playing live because there was so many different things. I mean, music was a great song to play live. Our last track is just
0: a, another wonderful track that you collaborated on, Feller in the Cellar, and that seems just another great example of the work that you and John and, and the group did in
1: that period. Well, I couldn't... Um, I told him I'd written this song about a bloke that gets trapped in the cellar, and I said to John, I, c- I can't think of a bloody title for it, and he just turned around and he said, Feller in the Cellar. <laughs> so it was him that said that but that's just another example of uh, the way he writes and I think that's you know if you listen to that track loud it's a hell of a track and the other thing about it is towards writing towards the end of the song I couldn't decide whether to let him out or not <laughs> so uh, I wanted to just leave him in the cellar so in the end, I left it a bit ambiguous whether, uh, you know, I'm going to well, I'm going to get out of this place alive. So actually, you don't know if he got out or not, <laughs> and I I don't know either. So anyway, that's that one.
0: It's been such a privilege to to talk to you, Bob, and share your memories of John, and and share your memories of writing, and 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 obviously playing such. Incredible material. That this music will live on for for many, many years in future and um with the passage of time, John's talent is only only growing and growing.
1: Well I hope so. I've been I mean I've been amazed by the response. I keep getting messages and stuff and it makes it makes it hard to come to terms with. And people say, well, you've got these wonderful memories, but sometimes it's the shock of knowing that it's past, yeah, and that memories are all I've got, you know. Although with fantastic memories and best years of my life, it's just it's 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 going to take a long time yeah. to come to terms with the fact that um, I'm not going to see him again. Yeah, but uh, great years, happy years, great band, great friends, great everything. To be honest with you, I was a bit reticent talking about it like this, but yeah. I've enjoyed it very much, Jason. I've enjoyed talking to you. It's been great. All right, my friend. Take care. Bye bye.
2: I'm the family.